You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. All right, well, good morning. How are we doing? Those of you online, thank you for tuning in. If you would open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, we gave away 30 Bibles last Sunday for Father's Day, yes. And uh, I was just, man, I was really, I was really floored by that. We were talking about it on Monday, you know, and I shared my story a couple weeks ago when we started the series that that it was, it was expressing interest in a Bible and getting one and immediately beginning to read it is what God used to lead me to the Lord over 15 years ago. And, and to think that the prospect of that uh, could happen in, in the lives of one or many of those 30 men is uh, just an incredibly encouraging thing to me. And so um, pray that God's Word would uh, prove itself living and active in every way. September of this year, 21 years ago in September... Uh, will be the, I guess, 21-year anniversary of HBO's landmark series, Band of Brothers. Uh, Remarkably well-done series, if you haven't seen it. It chronicles the lives of the United States soldiers as they navigate the horrors of World War II. And it's just an an inspiring show. I mean, on so many fronts, it's an inspiring show. It shows their, their bravery and their conviction Uh, as they went to battle. But the thing that I appreciate about it is that it doesn't paint them as these sort of flawless heroes. It it demonstrates uh, a great amount of fear and confusion that these men felt inwardly as well. And I thought about this week as I was preparing this message, the penultimate episode of that series. It's an episode called Why We Fight. And it's one of my favorite episodes of any series of any show. It's just an amazing, amazing episode of television. It follows the main characters, the men of Easy Company, and they finally cross into Nazi Germany. Uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's like four, four-fifths of the way through the show, eight episodes, and it's not until the ninth episode they finally get into Nazi Germany. And at, at this point in the show, those who are still alive in Easy Company have been in Europe for over two years and it's amazing to see the, the sort of arc, character arc, in the lives of many of these individuals. Because when the show begins, they're excited to serve their country. They're full of energy. They're full of optimism. They're ready to fight. They're ready to you know, prove their worth and prove their value. And by this point, episode nine, they're tired. They're frustrated. They're becoming impatient because they're not even really sure why they're fighting anymore. And more than anything, they just want to be home. And they're annoyed with all these new guys that are coming in, and they're all excited like they were two years, and they're going to just like, shut up. This is not fun at all, right? I mean, they're just beat down. And it's about midway through this episode, they come to a small village in Germany, and they stop, and they send several groups to patrol around the village to make sure that where they are is secure. And as they're walking, the scene gets really tense. It gets very quiet. Uh, they, they grow very fearful. They feel like, man, something is not right here. Something is about to happen. And they got all eyes everywhere. They're, they're looking out. And it's in that moment of, like, tense urgency and anxiety that they see it for the very first time. They witness a German concentration camp. And it's a pivotal moment in the show. 
It's pivotal because most of them didn't even know that they existed. When you consider World War II history, if you learned World War II history in uh, American schools growing up, then concentration camps are probably like one of the most vivid things that come to your mind when you think about World War II, right? Concentration camps, atomic bomb. Like that's the two things that our minds typically trend towards. But for them, the reality is when you read the history, many of them didn't know that these were even a thing until the war was almost over with, until they finally got into Germany and saw it for the very first time. And and in this episode, it's just a, a terrifically emotional scene. These grown men, warriors on the battlefield, and they are just devastated by what they see, the sight of cruelty that these human beings faced, the smell of sickness and death, the anxiety and the eyes of people who had been held captive for who knows how long. I mean, it just absolutely devastates them. They begin to ask questions. You know, who could do this? How could this have, have been allowed to happen? How could the local village have, have not known about this and, and been okay with this? They had to have known. And it's at this point in the show they discover this is why we fight. This is why we fight. They fight because if they don't, innocent people will fall victim to the enemy. We find ourselves this morning in week three of the culture war, and some of you may be wondering that same question, why do we fight? Why do we do any of this stuff? Why is any of this stuff that we're talking about, why does it matter? Why should I have an opinion about things that are happening in the world around me? Why can't we just stick to being Christians in the church and let the world deal with its own problems? Now, I confess, That sounds wonderful. Why do we need to do any of this stuff? And the answer is quite simple. If we don't fight, innocent people fall victim to the enemy. It's just that simple. Anytime there is a war happening, whether it be literal war or a cultural war, it is not as simple as just two sides fighting against one another. There is always a third group of collateral that get caught in the crossfire that end up uh, being harmed detrimentally because of the side waging war. And so we fight recognizing that if we don't, innocent people suffer. The enemy is always looking in the church to cause a distraction amongst the body of Jesus. He's always looking for a way to cause division within the family of God. This is his, one of his chief goals is to destroy the people of God, and he does so by creating dissensions and divisions within the body. And so we fight in part to preserve unity within the body of Christ, because if we don't fight, marriages are affected, families are affected. Entire churches will be disruptive. In 2020 alone, there was a substantial number of churches that split. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, 2020 was 41 years ago, so I don't, uh, I don't remember the statistics anymore. But many of those churches that split have since closed their doors. And, and, and listen, they were split mostly over issues in the world that divided them because they did not have a sound biblical foundation and worldview that unified them. And so when something came in as a distraction, they didn't have the tools to deal with it, and it created a division and ultimately led to their demise. When the world's beliefs infiltrate the church and begin infecting the minds of God's people, it must be addressed immediately. If not, any time you leave error unaddressed, it is like a disease. It spreads and it infects everything. It threatens to divide the body of Jesus. And division is something that we are told very sternly to be cautious of, 
Paul says in Galatians 5, 19, and 20, dissensions and divisions are works of the flesh, and they are things that are opposed to the Spirit of God. So divisiveness cannot be allowed to take place in the church. So we must fight against it. But how? That's really the question. How do we do that? Our passage gives us, I believe, a very clear answer. We come to Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 this morning. And Paul is going to instruct Titus to fight against division that was cropping up in the churches in Crete. Remember last week we talked about the importance of godly, qualified leadership. The Bible calls these leaders elders. And we are, as a church, to submit to the elders of this body. We entrust ourselves to the direction of this body. And then notice in verse 10, Paul is going to draw a subset of individuals out and say, unlike the rest of the church who is willing to submit, these individuals do not submit to the elders. Look at verse 10. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. So people in the church that submit to the elders, and there are people in the church who do not submit to the elders. And worse than that, not only are they unwilling to submit, they have become divisive. They have been taken captive by worldly thinking, by faulty beliefs, and they are now pushing it on everyone else, and it is causing division within the church. And Paul tells Titus, you deal with it, and deal with it now. So let's walk through the text. The Scripture lays out, I think, a very clear plan for how to deal with a divisive person. I'm going to say this up front. I'm going to say it again later in the message. This is not a sermon that's ever going to land me on TBN. So like if you ever had that thought of like, you know, he's a young guy. Maybe he's just thinking City on a Hill is like a stepping stone to a bigger, more, you know, national. See this sermon as exhibit A. I will never be on TBN. Um, I also want to say that this is a message that is oriented towards how we deal with divisiveness in the church, but many of you are in leadership positions in the secular environment, and the principles that we are going to unpack from this text are as applicable in your environment as they are here. These are just helpful tools for how, in general, to deal with a divisive person, whether that be in the church or the workplace or in a friend group or within the family. The threat of divisiveness is always, always, always to be taken seriously. How do we do it? First, we recognize the red flags. There are always red flags with divisive individuals. You can just tell. There are certain characteristics that divisive people embody. Paul mentions three of them in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The first thing he says is they are insubordinate. They're insubordinate. So uh, this is a word in the Greek that means something like independent or unrestrained. In other words, these are people who are not interested in ever being told what to do by anyone. They do not submit to the leadership of the church. They will not listen to the leadership of the church. They will do what they think is right, regardless of what the leadership of the church is saying. And I just want to say this, in in the context of church membership, church participation, this is sin. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is a commandment, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And then I love this this next part. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. In other words, don't hack them off, because it's not going to serve you well if you do that. So we take this, that the leader's role is to disciple, to build up, 
to prepare, to instruct, to, uh, to, to get you ready for the work of the ministry, to equip you for the work of the ministry, and to protect by watching out for divisive people, by, by watching out for wolves and false teaching and so on and so forth. And we will, according to this verse, pastors and elders give an account for how well we do this. This is something we take very seriously at City on a Hill. We take it very, very seriously. So Paul is saying, it is in your best interest as a church member to submit to the leadership, assuming the leadership is taking this very seriously, because they will guide you and lead you well. The word here, submit, it's a Greek word, hupeko. It's a word that means literally to yield. So we get the idea then that the insubordinate individual is someone who is unyielding to church leadership. Listen, whenever we're insubordinate to a leader in any capacity, what we are essentially saying with our actions is, I am more qualified than you are to decide what is best. I am more qualified. I don't need to listen to you because I actually know better than you do. This is true in any context, church or outside. To be insubordinate is to believe you are more qualified to make the decisions that are designated for the leaders in charge over you. And let's be radically honest, you're probably not. And even if you are, it doesn't give you a free pass to just act however you want to act. There is, there is an ordering how God has structured the church. Insubordination is a red flag for divisiveness. Second thing he says is empty talkers. Empty talkers. This is a, a phrase that means something along the, the lines of, of being held captive by an idea or a belief that is void of substance. It is meaningless in the grand scheme of things. It is an idea that's void of truth. It's void of substance. It's something that doesn't matter. It refers to someone who gets caught up in non-essential ideas that begin to dominate their minds such that they make a huge deal about it and they elevate it to a point of a major essential issue to the detriment of actual major essential issues. This is common in cults. You'll see this. Those of you who have a uh, cult background raised in, in cult settings, I don't mean like, you know, cloak and hood. I mean like, like Mormon, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, things of that nature. Uh, this is very common in, in new religious movements where they will take a very minor issue and they will elevate it to a major issue and then draw attention to the fact that no one else seems to, to care. And that is a proof that they're wrong and we're right because we got this and they didn't. God revealed this to us. He didn't reveal it to them. Very common in cults. Paul sees this kind of elevating non-essential ideas as a red flag. Why? Because it draws attention away from the gospel. It becomes a distraction to the gospel, which is the whole point. So let's park here for a moment. I got a truth for you that I think will hit all of us where we are regardless of where we are. You can tell what matters to a person by listening to them talk. I want you to think on that one brothers and sisters, for a moment. You can tell what matters to a person by listening to them talk. It's just the honest truth. When we talk about something nonstop, whether it is good or bad, it reveals that that thing matters to you, that it is a high value in your life. And there is a connection in the Scripture between what we talk about and what we value inwardly in our heart. The heart and the mouth are generally connected throughout the Bible, not just the New Testament, the Old Testament as well. Psalm uh, 19, verse 14. The psalmist says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, they're together, be, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
There's a connection between what comes out of my, my mouth and what dominates the spaces in my heart. In other words, the substance of my mouth reflects the substance of my heart. This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 15, 18, when he said, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now, the context of that passage is really interesting. He's being challenged by the religious leaders for uh, eating things that are unclean. And they're saying, like, look, if you do that, then, then that's going to defile you. That's going to make you unclean. And Jesus is like, if you eat something that's unclean, it's going to go out your, or in your stomach and, and out the other direction. It doesn't make you unclean at all. What actually defiles a person is that which is in the heart and proceeds from the mouth. That is the defiling thing. He turns the entire economy of the religious leaders upside down. Your, your mouth reflects what you love. So, so here's what it means. If you're arguing constantly over a topic or an issue that is not front and central to the Scripture, that is a distraction to the gospel. You can say that you love the Word of God all day long, but your words will betray you. Because if you did, you would speak about that instead. You wouldn't be like those people in Isaiah 29, 11, of whom God said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Consider your words. What do they reveal about you? If someone were to ask someone close to you in your life what matters the most to you, what would they say about you based on what they hear you talk about? Arguing constantly over non-essentials is a red flag. Third, Paul says they are deceivers. This is the final red flag in his list and perhaps the most revealing, certainly the worst. I heard James, Pastor James, say this uh, one time roughly 10 years ago. It blew my mind. It rocked my world, and I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Here's the truth. You are never more like Satan than when you deceive. <laughs> Yikes. We can just pray and go home right there. You are never more like Satan than when you deceive. He is the father of lies. Jesus says in John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let me say this as plainly as possible. When you are so committed to something that has become divisive in the church, that you will lie about it when you are confronted, you have become a threat to the unity of the church. And you will be dealt with. It will be dealt with. It has to be. Now, before we move on, I want to clarify something. I want to clarify what is not a red flag. Because I don't want to cross lines here and, and, and get you confused. Practically speaking, the sequence for how this unfolds in the church goes something like this. A person adopts a faulty belief, whatever that is, fill in the blank. I'll let you make the application there. It could be theological, it could be social, it could be whatever. They adopt a faulty belief, and they begin wrestling with that faulty belief in their minds. And they begin talking with other Christians about that faulty belief as they are processing through what they're wrestling with. That gets people's attention. That puts us on alert. We need to be looking for red flags. But understand, having a faulty belief and talking about it is not in and of itself a red flag. Please get that. It puts us on alert to consider whether there might be actual red flags, which are insubordination, empty speech, and deception. Those are the red flags. Talking about a faulty belief, not a red flag. Now, the reason I say that is because there are times when I wrestle with faulty thinking 
or bad theology, and I talk about it with other people to work it out, that can be perceived as divisive, when in reality, it's just ignorance. I'm just working through something, trying to get to the truth. That's not an example of divisiveness. It's just an example of growing in your faith. When I consider the sanctifying process, the process that the Bible describes by which we are shaped more into the image of Jesus, that process, I believe, in a corporate setting within a body of of, of Christ in a local church is on a spectrum. In other words, what I mean by that is if you were to assess everyone in this room right now, there would be a spectrum of sanctification from immature to really mature, depending on how long you've been a Christian, how much discipleship you've had, and a whole host of other uh, attributing factors. It's a spectrum. So, for example, what that means is that some of you in the church, in the body, you are like spiritual infants. You are newer to the faith, you haven't been discipled much, you will wrestle with ideas more so than other people, you need a little bit more attention, you need a little bit more guidance, you need more instruction. Paul talks about this as the the person who needs the spiritual milk and not meat because you're not ready for meat yet. There's a process and you're in that beginning stages. You require a little bit more attention. You might be more open to faulty belief than other people. That's okay. It's a part of the growth process. Some of you are advanced beyond infancy. You're more in that like teen middle school category where you have some good ideas about who God is, but you're socially awkward and you say crazy things sometimes. (laughs) And you're going to require a little bit of correction, and that's okay. It's a part of the growth process once again, but you're getting there. You're growing. You're understanding, right? You're developing. There's spiritual development and formation happening. And then there are some of you who are very mature. You've walked with Jesus a really long time. You've experienced deep discipleship. You know the word well. You study the word well. You have a well-formed mind for theological thought. You can think clearly and biblically about social issues. You're someone that should be looked to as a leader and someone who can disciple the middle school and infancy stages. So we're on a spectrum. Can we agree to that? I don't think that's too controversial. So here is my point, though, is that all of us regardless of our spiritual maturity, are capable of thinking incorrectly about things from time to time. And that includes me. So understand, when talking about divisiveness, I'm not merely talking about believing something that is wrong and having a discussion about it with someone. We would all be guilty of divisiveness if that were true. What Paul is addressing here is someone who is convinced of something that is wrong. They are unwilling to be corrected. They are campaigning for their faulty belief, and they will lie about it when they are confronted about it. Those are the red flags. That is what divisiveness looks like in the church. When we see that, we address them. We respond with urgency. That's the second point. We recognize the red flags, and then we respond with urgency. Once the threat has been assessed and confirmed, we have to actually do something about it. We can't allow the threat of division to remain unchallenged in the body of Christ. So how do we respond? Paul tells us to do two things with the divisive person. First, he says, silence the divisive person to stop the damage. Silence them. Verse 11, that's literally the the, the terminology. They must be silenced. It's the Greek word epistemizo. It's a word that literally means to apply a muzzle. Put a sock in it is what he's saying. There's a sense of urgency to shut this person up because what they are saying and what they are perpetuating in the body is harmful and they are unyielding about it. 
and unwilling to be corrected, so silence them. Uh, how many of you have seen the greatest movie of all time, Forrest Gump, and I will not debate about it? <laughs> Don't even email me. There's that great scene when, when Forrest comes back from Vietnam, and he's in the nation's capital, and he gets like, like unknowingly looped into this major protest, and they want him to speak, remember? And he goes up on the stage, and he's like about to start speaking in front of the microphone, and that like crazy lady comes up and starts pulling all the cables out, and so they can't hear him. And so he like tells this whole story about how he was in Vietnam and Bubba and all the things that took place and Lieutenant Dan and, and like they're frantically trying to get the cables plugged back in. They finally get the last one in and he's at the microphone and he goes, that's all I have to say about that. And <laughs> just totally silenced. The whole story is just, no one heard it. That's the idea here. Pull the plug. Turn the mic off. Stop the nonsense. But, there, but I think there's even a deeper sense of urgency here as well, like a, a need to immediately react. Like if, if you're a parent of small kids ages 5 to 10 especially, um, how many of you have ever been in, in, that, in that really weird scenario where um, your kids are watching a movie that you have seen before, but it's been years ago, and you're like, yeah, I remember that movie. That was a great movie. And then a scene comes on that you totally forgot was in that movie, and it's probably not like the most helpful developmentally for them. And so you frantically are like looking for the remote to just turn it, turn it off, right? Jumping in front of the TV. There's urgency to silence whatever is happening to, to get rid of or prevent the damage that could be done. Once we, re once we recognize the red flags of divisiveness, we respond immediately by silencing them in order to prevent further damage because there will be further damage if we do not understand that. Verse 11 he says, they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, pay attention to that phrase, whole families. There's a couple of ways that we can understand that phrase in the original language. Both of them are appropriate translations. Both of them, I think, are very applicable to what we're talking about right now. The first way we can understand it is whole household families, whole family units, in other words. So, so uh, we see this today, right, where a husband or a wife will get caught up in some kind of weird or faulty belief and come home and, and begin talking about it with uh, the husband or the wife, whichever the other one is. Uh, and, and it's almost like at like myth level or conspiracy level. Paul uses the word myth here, which is the same kind of thing, a tale or a fable. And they get caught up in it and they come home and they're telling their spouse and their spouse is like, look, I don't think this sounds right. I think we ought to talk to the pastor about this. And there creates division and disagreement within the home. This is one of the reasons why we work to silence divisiveness, because families, homes are affected. This happens with our kids as well. Our kids hear crazy ideas in school or with friends or on the internet or wherever, and they come home convinced of things that are simply untrue. And it creates division and tension between parents and the children, because they've bought into a lie about something that they heard in the world that is just not true. So Paul says, shut it up. Put a sock in it. Muzzle them. This is why we respond with urgencies, because families are at stake. Households are at stake. The blood is on our hands if we don't do something about that. It could mean a family unit. It could also mean a whole household church. So the word family here, it's the Greek word oikos. It's a word that literally just means house. Sometimes it's translated as family contextually. Sometimes it means an actual house. Sometimes it can mean a house church. Uh, it's consistent with the uh, small churches that would have been present in Crete that would have met in the home. These would have been house churches. And uh, it might be that Paul is telling Titus, look, these divisive people in the church, they are creating so much problems that the entire church is being affected by it. Here's the point. 
We respond with urgency because relationships in the home and in the body of Christ are at stake. And so Paul says they must be silenced. Don't let a threat to unity continue any longer than necessary. We silence the divisive person to prevent further damage, but there's one more way that we respond, and and this is, uh, it doesn't get better. We rebuke them. We rebuke the divisive person to restore them to the truth. Look at verse 13. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, it says. The word rebuke here, it's a word that means to put to proof or to refute. In other words, it's the idea that, that when you are confronting someone who has been acting divisively, you silence them and then you challenge them to make a case for why what they think is actually true, knowing that it's not. Make your case. Make your, make your argument. And then let's have a dialogue about where the error is. I think that we need to talk about this practice for a moment. This is a, a practice, rebuking, is something that I think is probably met by most of you with kind of this like, ugh, Right? It's not something we want to do, and, and I think it's, it's, it's an art that's been lost in the church primarily because it's vastly misunderstood, and because it has been vastly misunderstood, it's been vastly misused, often to the injure of other people. This can be done very poorly, and when it is done poorly, it is not good. But it is a biblical practice that is important, that, it, that holds value for unity in the body. So there are two things that you need to know about rebuking someone. Number one... A rebuke should be strong. A rebuke should be strong. It says rebuke them sharply. This is a word that means severely. In other words, don't beat around the bush, right? Don't, don't speak in generalities. Don't be vague about it. When you're approaching someone to discuss their, their incorrectness, the error that they have bought into and are using to divide people, rebuke them clearly and strongly with clarity and force. That means give a clear explanation of why they are wrong, why it cannot be tolerated, and why they need to turn to the truth. And look, I know this isn't fun. It's not. It's not something that we should ever look forward to doing. I, I thought about this first service, and I, I, I credited Chris Cunnington because I heard it from him first. He heard it from someone else. I don't remember who, but, but the quote goes something like, when you are excited to rebuke someone else, you're the wrong person to do it. Like, if you are excited to go and rebuke someone, sit down, eat a Snickers, like, chill for a minute, right? And you're not the right person to do it. But, but get this, when we are forced to rebuke someone, we want to make sure that it is strong, that it is effective, that it is clear. Why? So we don't have to do it again. There's nothing worse than a vague rebuke where the person walks away with a completely different understanding than what you thought they were going to walk away with, and now you've got to go to them a second time because the first time wasn't strong enough. And now you've created two of these instances that are awkward and awful instead of just the one. We want to make sure it's done right the first time. So use grace. <laughs> be gracious towards that person, but be very clear and unapologetic about how what they are doing or talking about or arguing for is divisive and why it cannot be tolerated in the church any longer. That is the spirit of what Paul means here. A rebuke should be strong. And, and let me say this just as a side note. These are principles that you can practice in kind of your, your friend groups, family, whatever, secular world. In the church setting, it would behoove you to come to an elder or a pastor to notify them before you do this. This is really a role for the elders of the church to do, not you, okay? It can begin as a conversation, but when it gets to the silencing and rebuking part, that takes a step up. 
And so we use the model of Jesus, go to them one-on-one, go to them two-on-one, and then what does he say? Bring them before the elders. That's where this really starts to take root. A rebuke should be strong, but as importantly, as importantly, secondly, a rebuke should be restorative. It should be restorative. Notice the purpose. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. In other words, rebuking is not for the sake of just cutting someone down. We don't do this to just run them out of town, right? This is to restore them back to the community of faith, to have them turn away from the myths that they've bought into and to turn back to the truth of God's word. There's a telos, there's a goal in mind here of restoration, and, and we miss this so often. Rebuking is not winning an argument. It's not a game that you're trying to beat them at. The goal is correction and restoration, that they would come back into the community of faith. When you rebuke someone strongly and with the goal of restoration and they see the error of their way and they return, it's a joyful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So correction, restoration is the goal. Now let me make some applications here that are going to meddle with you for the rest of the day. Notice that the divisive person is mostly... Paul says, a part of the circumcision party. This means that they are mostly Jewish Christians. Jewish people who were brought up in Judaism have now become Christians. Now, why is this an important detail? Because it means that they were most apt to bringing ideas and beliefs from Judaism and trying to import them into Christianity in a way that was incompatible and insist that they be done. These are, in other places, in Galatians, referred to as the Judaizers. They were, they were he says, devoted to Jewish myths. Uh, these are people who, in the, the Galatians context, were insisting that uh, in order to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew, which meant you had to be circumcised before you could then be baptized and added to the church. Praise God, that is not true. Amen. <laughs> Baptism numbers would plummet, right? It says that they were following the commandments of men. Which means that, again, their religious ideology that underlies their Jewish faith that they were trying to push into Christianity was forceful. They were pressuring people to do this or you're not actually saved. They would say things like, you can't be a Christian unless you believe this. You can't be a Christian unless you do things this way. So let's make some connections. That means that anything outside of Scripture that as being made equal with being a Christian is a problem. It means that anything outside of Scripture that is being made equal to being a Christian is a problem. If you say you cannot be a Christian and blank, and that blank is not directly and explicitly from the Word of God, you are adding to the Word of God, that is legalism, and you are wrong. There are a couple of practical examples that I can give you. Let me tell you about two. Let's talk about alcohol for a moment. Everyone's favorite topic in a Baptist church. Everyone's least favorite topic in a recovery church. That's weird. A little bit of a dichotomy. I can make a good argument for my personal life and the way I live my life for total absence of alcohol. It's an argument from a position of wisdom and above reproach. Um, I can, I can defend it well. I'm, I'm a trained seminarian. I know how to argue well. This is what they train me. I can, I can make this argument well. I do not like what, what alcohol has done to my family. 
It has left a wake of terror and destruction in my family as a child growing up that continues to impact me and the people I love in many real and present ways. I hate from the bottom of my heart what alcohol has done to me and the people I love. I hate what alcohol has done to some of you and to some of your family and the people that you love. But if I say you cannot be a Christian and drink alcohol, I have crossed the line. I have added something to the Bible that does not exist. In essence, what I'm saying is the Bible isn't good enough. Let me make it better. Let me, let me, let me add to it a little bit so it's just a little better, God. What about politics? I have views that I think are extremely helpful. They're far from perfect, but I think they're extremely helpful in many ways uh, for overcoming a godless pattern that has been existent in the world since, I don't know, Genesis 3. I can make a really good argument textually for why I believe what I believe. And if you want to hear that argument sometime, come and ask me about it. In fact, actually, for uh, at least the topic of the value of life, if you're in Bible studies next week, I'm going to tackle that issue in, in Luke's gospel because Jesus appeals to a story about David in 1 Samuel 21 where he basically says that if it is to preserve life, it is okay even if it means breaking Torah, which is extremely, radically controversial. Read the study if you're interested in that. I, I can make a pretty good textual argument for why I believe what I believe polit politically. But hear me, people of God, when I say this. If we say you cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat, you cannot be a Christian and vote Republican, you cannot be a Christian and vote Independent, you cannot be a Christian and not vote, when we say those things, we've crossed a line. You are speaking to salvation in a manner in which God has not spoken. You are, if you are a Christian, a Christian by faith through grace, and that not of your own, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. It is a work of God. Those statements, when we say things like that, are divisive to families, they're divisive to the church, they're dishonoring to people created in the image of God, many of whom serve and worship next to you in this room. They're an affront to the Heavenly Father. When we speak where Scripture has not spoken, we are in error. When I say, Jesus on the cross wasn't enough, here, let me add to it. It's an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it must be silenced and rebuked. This is how we deal with divisiveness in the church. Before anything, we need to recognize if there even are red flags. A person may not be even being divisive. And if that's the case, then let them wrestle with it. That's a part of the spiritual growth journey, right? But if there are red flags, if they are insubordinate, if they are empty speaking, if there is deception, then silence them to stop the damage from incurring in the rest of the body and rebuke them strongly with the goal of restoration. And then finally, we'll end here, it doesn't get better. We remove the unrepentant. Once you have silenced and rebuked an individual who has acted divisively, you will discover in a matter of not too long after that what kind of person, what category they fall in. Paul gives two of them. Look at verses 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. 
They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. There are two classes of people here. There are the pure and there are the unpure. There are the believing and there are the unbelieving. And you will figure out which category they land in by how they respond to the silencing and rebuking if it's done the right way. You are either a true believer in Christ, born again, and possess the Holy Spirit, and you will see the error of your sin and eventually, doesn't happen in a matter of my, I wish it did, but eventually repent and be restored back to the body of faith. And when that happens, we rejoice. We have this weird backwards way of doing things where when someone confesses their sin and repents, we want to lay discipline on them. The New Testament model is receive them joyfully with grace. It's those who do not repent, who do not confess their sin, who are insubordinate, who are unyielding, that is who discipline falls upon. And it reveals that they're, they're, they're likely not actually believers at all. Paul says they profess to know God. They say I'm a Christian, but they deny him by their works. They're uncorrectable and often unsaved. And so Paul says remove them. Now Jesus will come back and say you're to treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. We have translated that as like we never speak to them again. When in reality, it's the tax collector and the Gentile that Jesus was most interested in sharing the gospel with. So when you remove someone for their sin that they're unrepentant of because they're being divisive, you remove them to prevent damage, but you continue to share the hope of the gospel with them that God might change their heart. But this is a, this is a hard practice. We don't, I mean, we hate this. We haven't had to do this often in the, in the 15 years I've been here. I, literally on one hand, I can count the number of times that the elders have had to actually do this, but it is a practice. Paul's going to go on later in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He's going to say, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Paul's a baseball fan. Two strikes and then the third, you're out. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Remove him. Listen, as your pastor, I know this isn't fun. And I know this won't get me on TV. I'm not getting a book deal from this sermon. They're not going to play this on TBN. I wish they would. If any of you know how to make that happen, let's, let's do it. That'd be fun. It's not what we want to hear. It's not what we want to hear. We don't want to practice this. We want to turn a blind eye and just continue to pretend like everything's fine. But listen, there's a reason why Scripture teaches this. There's a reason why... Paul instructs Titus to do this, and it is as vital for us now as it was Titus then. We live in a culture full of opposition towards Scripture. It is easier now more than ever before to become influenced by it. The advent of the Internet with YouTube and with smartphones, false teaching and empty myths can be accessed from literally anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. The threat of divisive ideology is at an all-time high. So we need to be committed to this. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's not what you want to do, but for the sake of the unity of Jesus, this is what we have to do. And let me close by saying this. We exhibit a ton of grace here at City on a Hill, a ton of grace. We believe, hear me, we believe in the power and in the beauty of the grace of God. We really do. We believe that everyone gets it wrong from time to time. We really do. We believe that grace is sufficient to cover any of your sins when you confess them, when you repent of them, and when you move away from them. 
We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to change otherwise stubborn hearts who are, who are not willing to change. We believe that the power of God through his Holy Spirit is capable of doing that. You can make mistakes here at City on a Hill. City on a Hill is a safe place for you to get it wrong. It is not a safe place to propagate an ideology that is counter to the leadership's biblical convictions here. We will not be taken off of mission. The mission is Jesus. The mission is taking the help, hope, and healing of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone that we can get it to. And anything that stands to disrupt this mission will be silenced, rebuked, and removed. In other words, the mission of the gospel is why we fight. And we will always Always fight for it. Let's pray. Father, we stand before you convicted, Lord. Your spirit always knows how to, to work his way into those hard-to-access, darker spots of our heart. And so I pray that, that his work in our heart this morning would, would really reveal much that we can be uh, thinking on, that we can be working through, and, <coughs> and where repentance is necessary, Lord, I pray, God, that you would move us to that place. And I pray that, that as, as the worship team gathers here for, for one last song, that, that you would prepare our hearts with a, a spirit of, of gratitude and thankfulness, even when it's uncomfortable, even when we're, we're challenged in our sin and when we're challenged in ways that we've acted that haven't honored you, God. I pray that you would take those hard things and that you would, that you would turn them into fuel for worship, that you would give us a, a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving uh, towards you and what you have done on our behalf through your son Jesus. That this would be a time where we would recognize that you and your altar, the foot of the cross, is the single place that broken and hurting and confused people might come to to receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. God, help us remember that forgiveness has risen from the grave and it is accessible to all of us who bow before you. So as we come to the altar here this morning, God, would you lead us? Would you, would you lead our hearts as we sing and as we praise and as we lift our hands towards you, the Father in heaven, the giver of good things, the Lord of all. How we love you and we thank you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.